we find ourselves amid a dialogue between the angel Gabriel and the Virgin Mary who has just been startled by, his, by this unexpected angelic visit. Mary is about to learn from Gabriel that she is highly favored by the Lord to participate in the greatest drama of redemption ever. This is where we pick up. This is the point at which we pick up from where we left off last Sunday, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. The Lord has highly favored Mary by electing her for a very special calling. After calming her nerves, <laughs> Gabriel proceeds to announce to Mary an oracle revealing specifically what God has unexpectedly chosen her to do. And it's unexpected. She, She's not expecting any of this. All of this comes as a complete and utter surprise to her. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick up at verse 31. Luke 1, 31. Because in verse 31 of Luke chapter 1, he says to her, You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, now remember, remember, just for the benefit of those of you who were not with us on last Sunday, allow me at this very point to just pause quickly and read what the scripture says right up to verse 31 that I've just read. Back in verse 26, in the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. There are three words that capture the essence of what Gabriel says to Mary up to this point. Three words, conceive, carry, and call. Now, those are three words you can easily remember when thinking about what Gabriel is saying to Mary. Conceive, carry, and call. She will conceive a child without any involvement from a male. She will carry the child to term. She will carry the child to birth. And she will call him Jesus. That is his name. Now, there was a similar angelic announcement to Abraham and Sarah's servant girl way back in Genesis chapter 16, verse 11, where an angel said to her, you to Hagar, that is, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. Genesis 16.11. It's a similar announcement. Also, we find a similar pattern in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet says, the virgin will conceive and give birth, carry, to a son. 
and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It is important to notice how God's redemptive purpose unfolds through conceptions, births, and naming of offspring from one generation to the next. There were countless ways the Lord could have chosen to bring the Messiah into the world, but he chose, the Lord chose to do it by means of conception and childbearing. What is unique about Mary's calling is her conception without the involvement of a man. Her unique conception is miraculous and, and indicates the uniqueness of the child she will bear. Always remember that when you think about the virgin birth, remember it, 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 it teaches us the uniqueness of Jesus, the uniqueness of our Savior. So there are five truths here, five truths the angel reveals in his description to Mary about her miraculous child in verses 32 and 33. Five truths. He says this, verse 32, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Verses 32-33. Okay, so here's a summary of this five-fold description, these five truths that the angel has just said to her. And there's more here than meets the eye. Very often we might read this and just read over it and keep going and recognize it, believe it, receive it. But let's just take a few moments, instead of skiing over it, to dive deeper. Even if we run out of time today, that's okay. It's Christmas. Five truths. In this five-fold description of Mary's child. Number one, he will be great. Don't miss that. John the Baptist was predicted to be great in the sight of the Lord according to the angel back in the same chapter, back in verse 15, Luke chapter 1. What kind of greatness does Gabriel mean in regard to Mary's child. We know that Elizabeth's child would be great in the sight of the Lord, but, but what kind of greatness does Gabriel mean here about the Virgin Mary's child? Well, unqualified greatness is what Gabriel means here. The greatness of Jesus is contrasted with the greatness of John the Baptist in that John's greatness was qualified by in the sight of the Lord. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. While Jesus' greatness will be absolute and therefore unqualified greatness and the unqualified, absolute greatness of Jesus is also contrasted with the rest of humanity, which is not all that great. <laughs> Just think about it. He doesn't say here that Jesus will be great in the sight of the Lord, as he says about John the Baptist. Jesus is the Lord. So Jesus' greatness is unique even from that of John the Baptist in that it is an absolute greatness, an unqualified greatness. And of course, in contrast with the rest of humanity, no one else is absolutely great but God. Now, you know something? Um... 
it, in this era, but of course not only this era, in every era, there are always a whole bunch of humans trying to be great. Trying to be great in the eyes of the world. Trying to be famous in the eyes of the world. As if that's the only thing that really matters or the thing that, that the ultimate thing that matters is to be great and to be famous in the eyes of the world. And in today's very narcissistic climate, everybody, you know, would love to be great and famous. Well, almost everybody, it seems. Mm. But you can put together all the greatness that the world could muster and it would not even come close to the greatness of Jesus. And for that matter, it couldn't even approximate the kind of greatness that is Jesus. Jesus had a different greatness than John, who was a great man of God. Not only in the sight of the people, but also in the sight of the Lord. But Jesus' greatness is different, of a distinct and different nature. When you come to understand something, I mean, just a little bit, I mean, it's not possible for us in our humanness to completely comprehend all of the greatness of Jesus any more than we could comprehend all of the greatness of God the Father. But to the extent that we could comprehend just a smattering of the greatness of Jesus, that changes everything within us. See, honestly, um, now that I am a Christian and I have been a Christian believer for 43 and a half years, I, greatness has never meant the same to me now that I know Jesus. I, I don't care about trying to be great. That doesn't mean anything. Greatness in the eyes of the world doesn't count for anything as far as I'm concerned. Because the greatness of the world and greatness in the eyes of the world is fleeting and superficial and often phony and will soon pass, even at its best. And besides, greatness belongs to my Lord, not to me. Greatness belongs to our Savior, not to us. People run around, everybody run around trying to be great, you know. You had a whole generation of young people who, through parents and families, expend their lives trying to go to some sort of professional sport, for example. I've lived in that world up close and personal for a season, and there's nothing to it. People spend their lives trying to be great so they can get on television and have 15 seconds of fame and call that greatness when they then have to turn around after they come down off that mountain and live the rest of their lives in reality. Greatness is fleeting. It only happens for a moment. You'll get to stand on top of the mountain for a moment before somebody comes along and pushes you off. <laughs> and that's what you spend your life seeking? You're wasting your life and wasting your time. Forget about man's definition of greatness. It's meaningless, as, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. It's just meaningless. Vanity of vanities, you see. Oh, but Jesus' greatness is greatness of a different kind. And it is to be contrasted with the rest of humanity. This reminds me of Psalm number 40, verse 16, which says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. It's the Lord's greatness that we care about. Many people are called great, but the Lord's greatness is markedly distinct from mere human greatness, as we've already said. The greatness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is an absolute greatness. Everyone and everything we consider 
to be great pales in comparison to the greatness of Jesus and cannot even compare. Gabriel says to Mary, he will be great. Now listen, here's the question for you and me today. Is he great in your mind? And how great is he in your life? I'm not talking about your lip service. I'm talking about how you live. If people had to evaluate the greatness of Jesus by looking at the way you live, what would be their evaluation of Jesus' greatness in light of the way you and I live? Number two. He will be called the son of the most high. Now, while there are many sons among humanity, <laughs> there is only one son of the most high God. This son of the most high God is the child Mary will miraculously conceive and carry until he is born. He is not merely a son. He is the Son of God Most High. He is greater than all, even the angels, including Gabriel, who is announcing his coming to Mary. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 declares, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. That's a quote, by the way, of Psalm number two, verse seven. Or again, still in Hebrews chapter one, verse five, I will be his father and he will be my son. That's a quote of second Samuel chapter seven, verse 14. He is not simply Mary's son. He is the son of the most high God. Hmm. Bob Stein writes, and I quote, him. The mention of Jesus' divine sonship before mention of his Davidic messiahship in the next part of the verse indicates that the latter is grounded in the former and that Jesus' messiahship should be interpreted in terms of his sonship, end quote. In other words, Jesus' divine sonship is the foundation for his Davidic messiahship. There is no one like Jesus, the Son of God. That's the reason why, uh, for example, in Psalm number 2, back to Psalm number 2, uh, in verse 12, at the very beginning of verse 12, there is a command that says this, kiss the Son. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. He is worthy. Kiss the sun means to pay homage to him, to worship him, to bow at him, to bow before him, to kiss his feet. He is worthy because he is the son of God most high. Third, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. See, here is the part, the Davidic messiahship part. This shows the significance of Luke chapter 1, verse 27, the same chapter, verse 27, where Joseph is said to be a descendant of David. <laughs> Every time I see this word or these words or I see a genealogy, Remember what I've said to you before. I think Ancestry.com. Joseph is a descendant of David. Even though Mary's betrothed husband would not physically produce Jesus because of Jesus' divine origin, nevertheless, it was important that Joseph is a physical descendant of King David. By the way, so is Mary, we believe as well. All this fulfills the prophecy and promise the Lord gave to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
2 Samuel 7. If you remember anything about the history and the context of 2 Samuel chapter 7, then you'll remember that David, the great king of Israel in the 10th century BC, decided after having fought all of the wars that he had to fight to establish the kingdom of Israel, and certainly having to take over after the mess that uh, Israel's first king Saul left behind. Things are settled and established and David uh, determines in his heart that he wants to build a house for the Lord. It's his heart's desire. I mean, it's what he'd been working toward and fighting for, to build a house for the Lord. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the issue is addressed by God. The Lord addresses David with this issue through the prophet Nathan. So in 2 Samuel, there's a prophecy and a promise that the Lord gave to King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, it says this. The Lord declares to you, the Lord speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. In other words, you're not going to build me a house, God says. I'm going to build a house for you. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. That was quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 in the New Testament. Skip to verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Lord says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. The house of David actually refers to the dynasty of David. That's what the Lord's telling him. You want to build a temple for me? I'm not going to allow you to do that. I'm going to allow your offspring to do that. But since while we're on the subject, I'm going to build you into a dynasty. I'm going to build a house for you. A house and a kingdom that will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. This is this house of David refers to King David's dynasty. Jesus coming into the world fulfills this prophecy to King David. For Jesus is a descendant of David, just as Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. You know what this tells me? It tells me that God always keeps his word. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God's word. So because of that, then, for you and me, this means that God always keeps his promises, that he always keeps the promises of his word to his people, and therefore his word can always be trusted. Let me put it to you this way. When you open your Bible and you read God's word and you read the promises of God's word, know this that there is not one single syllable of God's word that will fail, ever. Why? Because God cannot fail. God cannot lie, for God is God. So you can trust God's word. You can trust the truths and the promises of God's word. And God is faithful then 
to his word. This is the reason, church, that we preach his word, the Bible. We believe the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. All 66 books of scripture, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, we know to be the divinely inspired word of God. So whenever you are reading the Bible, you are reading the words of God. Yes, written by men, but divinely brought into writing by the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit who has moved upon the hearts of particular individuals in human history, in the history of redemption, to write and to record the very words of God, even amid the stories and the situations that may have been going on at the particular time. Such as David, King David, dealing with the issue of wanting to build a house for the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God spoke. God spoke to the king. God spoke through the prophet Nathan at that time in the 10th century BC. God had not forgotten what he had promised David. And the angel Gabriel, delivering this news to Mary, is a part of the fulfillment of the promise of God's word. Now, listen. There is not anything else in this world or in life that is more trustworthy or even as trustworthy as the word of God. And you know something else, church? There's no reason for us to not be reading the word of God more than we do. You see, by reading the word of God, the word of God transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me, let me if I could, just take a couple of moments to practically apply this. Um, listen, whatever, whatever your needs are in life, God has promised to fulfill the needs you truly have, your real needs. God has promised to fulfill them. He's promised to fulfill them uh, to saints in the past, has recorded it and preserved it for us in Scripture so that we in the present time can trust in the promises of God to his people. And in God fulfilling those promises through his word in our lives, he heals every part of our brokenness. He redeems every part, parcel, and piece of our lives. The broken and shattered pieces of our lives scattered all over the place. God redeems. He will redeem us from all of our brokenness and from the brokenness of our sinfulness. He will redeem us from all of the pain and everything, all of the suffering that we have endured in this life and that we are enduring even now because he is the promise-keeping God, because his word has the power to fulfill his promise. Remember, in, in, the, in the historical context that Mary is living in, the people of Israel are broken. They're broken. There's, listen, they have, they have been trampled over by at least four kingdoms. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians crushed the northern part of Israel in 722 B.C. The Babylonians come along in 587, 586 B.C. and tear up and destroy the rest of what was God's people and the land. And then after them come the Persians, Cyrus, the great king of Persia, you see. And, and then after the Persians, you know, you have the Greeks and Alexander the Great, who lived but a short time, but who managed to conquer the then known world almost. And then after the Greeks, here come the Romans. And here the people of God, these ancient, this ancient people of God, the Israelites, are, under, are in subjugation to the Romans. They have been broken, abused, bruised, and battered as a people for hundreds of years now while awaiting the promise of God's word that he would send a deliverer to redeem his people. 
Mary has been chosen, in addition to others, to be a part of the greatest act of redemption in human history. And at this moment, she has no idea the gravity of this. She's just hearing these things right now. And what is she hearing? What is the angel speaking to her? The word of God. The angel Gabriel is not coming to her with his own thoughts or ideas as if he could have any of his own as an angel. No, he's coming to her and he's delivering to her the word of God. Listen to me. Wherever you are, I mean, wherever you're sitting, and I'm not talking about the physical seat you're sitting in right now. I'm talking about wherever you are in your life and your journey, in your head and in your heart. The remedy for you, the redemption for you, is the word of God and the promises of God's word. Herein lies your healing. You will find it nowhere else. Herein lies your purpose. You'll find it nowhere else. Stop looking everywhere else to find fulfillment and purpose. You'll find it nowhere else but in the word of God. Mary is experiencing this up close and personal. God always keeps his word. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God's word. And we can always trust God's word. Let me move on. Number four. The fourth truth that he reveals to her. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Not only will Jesus reign over the house of David, but he will reign over the house of Jacob, which refers back to the patriarch Jacob in Genesis chapters 25 through 49. Jacob comes onto the scene in Genesis chapter 25. He dies in Genesis chapter 49. Jacob, Jacob the patriarch would eventually be named Israel. By the Lord in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. And it will be affirmed again. Uh, it will be affirmed again in Genesis chapter 35, verse 10. Now, if you remember anything about Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. It's the story of Jacob at the Jabbok River. He is on his way, Jacob and his family. He is on his way to be reunited with his brother Esau after many years, after Jacob and their mother had conspired to steal the birthright for Jacob, which infuriated Esau, and Esau vowed that he would murder Jacob because of it. Years transpire, and the time comes for Jacob to face his brother, and he is fearful about it. He's worried about it, worried about it to the core. So here's what he does. He sends the family, the women, the children on ahead of him, going, to, going toward Esau. He sends them on ahead. And he retires off to himself at the Jabbok River. And the Bible doesn't tell us all the details of what takes place, but he winds up in a fight, a wrestling, all-out brawl with a man all night long. Now, that man is not just a man. I mean, we, we, we get the implications of it when we read the story, but he wrestles and fights all night with this man. And, and and he says to the man, I will not let you go until you bless me. I need you to bless me before I go forward for what I have to face. <clears throat> what this means is, is that Jacob had come to the end of his rope. <clears throat> come to the end of his rope. All of his scheming, you know, all of his trickery. His name literally means heel grabber. He's, all of his trickery. Had, you know, finally it was about to come home to roost, uh, at least so he thought. 
He had no idea how Esau was going to react to him, but the last time he saw Esau, he knew that Esau was going to kill him. And he knew that Esau was a powerful man and very well capable of doing it. And that he would meet Esau and Esau's men very soon. And that he might indeed meet his fate when he meets his brother again after all these years. And here he is at the end of himself, finally. Finally at the end of himself. And he says to the man, I would, listen, I need you to bless me. <laughs> and then he refused, as the man goes, apparently she's to walk away from him. He refuses to let him go and they wrestle and fight all night long. And in the middle of that melee, the Bible says the man touched him on the hip. At meeting, he put some hurt on him. So much so to the point that Jacob would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And the man said to him, I'm going to change your name. Your name will now be Israel. Because you have strived with God. And you have prevailed. And in chapter 35, verse 10 of Genesis, God confirms that Jacob's name is going to be Israel. Jacob is the eponymous ancestor of the nation of Israel. It's Jesus who will rule over Jacob. By the way, many of us um, interpreters of the Bible believe that the unidentified man with whom Jacob wrestled all night was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus himself, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Christ came onto the scene for that episode in Genesis chapter 32 and then left Jacob well before he would come into the world through the Virgin Mary, before his incarnation, that is to say. He names, he renames Jacob Israel. Only God could do such a thing. Only God would have the authority to do such a thing. To change Jacob's name and that name be confirmed by the father himself in Genesis chapter 35 verse 10 and it would last. And to this day, by the way, we refer to Jacob's descendants by this name, Israel. To this day. The patriarch Jacob and his family would eventually become the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. So if you start reading the Bible and you see how one, you know, one story, one episode leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. You start reading Genesis. You got to keep reading. You come to the end of Genesis because that's not the end of the story. They become the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. All this means that Jesus will reign as the ultimate sovereign or king over the entire dynasty of Israel forever. By the way, that name Israel, where the man says to Jacob, you have strived with God. You know, Israel is still striving with God, fighting with God, fighting against, wrestling with God. Wrestling with God and constantly in trouble and tension because of it. Look at what's going on right now. And now the whole world is, you know, allied against them because of what they're doing to the Gazans and reprisals against the terrorist attacks. Let's just go. Listen. Listen, Christian. You don't need to wonder why these people keep fighting. They keep fighting because they're struggling against God. And in their struggling against God, they're fighting with everybody else around them and everybody else is fighting with them. And by the way, the descendants of Ishmael are all over the place there. And the Lord told Hagar, 
And Abraham in Genesis, that Ishmael, wouldn't, he wouldn't get along with anybody either. So they fight. And they fight. And they fight. And they never stop fighting. And the rest of the world tries to figure out what to do about this. Oh, and of, sure, and of course, every good intentioned effort should be made to bring peace. But we as Christians must recognize that Israel, even by its very name, striving with God, fighting with God to this very day. By the way, the upside of the story you have to read in the Bible in the New Testament in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 to see what God ultimately is going to do about Israel. God is not finished with Israel, in other words. But back to Jesus, he is the ultimate sovereign over the entire dynasty of Israel. He is the sovereign king of kings over the house of Israel. Let us remember the, that the significance of Israel comes from God's promise to Father Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, in the book of Genesis chapter 12. Verses 2 to 3, where he declared an oracle of his word to Father Abraham. He said this, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God said these words to Father Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And God has been bringing it all to fruition ever since. Why? Because Abraham's descendants who would become Jacob, who would become Israel, in the book of Exodus, this is the people through whom the Messiah, the Redeemer, not only their Redeemer, but the Redeemer of the whole world, would come. They were chosen, they were created by God through the loins of Father Abraham to be the vessel through whom salvation would be brought into the world in the Son, our Savior, Jesus. Even though today, well, and even back in Jesus' day, most of them didn't believe it. This oracle in Genesis chapter 12 is known as the Abrahamic promise or the Abrahamic covenant. It contains God's promise of the blessing of salvation to all peoples on earth. Mary's miracle child, Jesus, is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. See, thousands of years later, God has not forgotten what he said to Father Abraham in what was somewhere roughly about the 20th century B.C. when God spoke these words to Father Abraham and made the promise to Father Abraham that he made. And then... By the end of the first century BC, in the, the, first, the beginning of the first century AD, God brings forth the fulfillment of this promise. So that now in the 21st century AD, we can know that God never forgets his word and he never forgets his promise. Well, if God never forgets his promise on such a grand scale as this, then surely God can never forget his prom the promises of his word, his word to you and me. Through the descendants of Abraham, the Savior of the world would come to bring salvation from sin and judgment because of Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis chapter 3. The long-awaited promise of salvation was about to come to fruition through the virgin birth of the Son of God because God never forgets his promise. God is ever faithful to fulfill his word no matter how 
how long ago it was promised. His promises cannot fail. Fifth, and I'll stop after this one. His kingdom will never end, the angel says to Mary. His kingdom will never end. So finally, the angel Gabriel reveals the duration of the Messiah's kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. This reminds us of the words of the prophet Isaiah that we read at the beginning of this worship service, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, where he writes, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 through 7. By the way, everybody these days talking about justice. You can't have justice ultimately without Jesus. Now that's, that's a message for, for us who are Christian believers, but it's also a message that is applicable to everybody. Everybody needs to hear it. Most of the world doesn't want to hear it. But it is true. He who will reign forever is the source, the soul, and the sum of righteousness and justice. Can't have justice without God. I mean, who has the authority to do anything with justice or about justice or to execute justice other than God. You can't have justice without God because you can't have justice without righteousness. Ultimately. See, the world's call for justice now ultimately is an empty call for justice. That's the reason justice never ultimately comes. But they don't understand this. And listen, by the way, let me, let me be very clear about something. I want to make sure that I communicate the right spirit and the right attitude. There, there's this, this does not mean that we as Christians should be arrogant and critical toward those who are non-Christian. No, it means we should be merciful and gracious to them as God is being merciful and gracious to them. They don't know. And if you're like me, I remember a time when I was not saved and had no clue of any of these things. And God had mercy on me. People who criticized me for my unbelief would never have won me or led me to Jesus. It was the people who had mercy and showed me God's grace and love, who knew I didn't know, who knew I didn't understand, and who cared enough to share with me. Let us remember that. The kingdom of Christ then is eternal. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the, the prophet Daniel writes about a vision he received from the Lord. And here it is. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. By the way, the Ancient of Days is God. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Christ's kingdom is forever. 
His kingdom will never end. His kingdom is without end. His kingdom is eternal. His kingdom, brothers and sisters, is the firmest of foundations. His kingdom reigns in perpetuity. His kingdom cannot fail. His kingdom will stand the test of time and eternity. His kingdom reigns from everlasting to everlasting. His kingdom will supersede all other kingdoms. All the kingdoms of this world will be subsumed into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. If his kingdom never ends, then that means our salvation never ends. To him be all glory, all blessing, all honor, all hallelujah, all praise, all worship forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that Christ reigns, that he is now seated at the right hand of your majesty on high. After having paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and being raised from the dead by your divine authority, now seated at the right hand of your majesty, ever making intercession for us, for his people Reigning over the universe, he is soon to return as King of kings and Lord of lords to reign forever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, O oh Father. Thank you. Thank you, O oh God, for what the angel delivered and revealed to Mary. Thank you, O oh God. For the word that you have revealed and delivered to us, O oh God, in the pages of Holy Scripture. That Jesus is great. That he is the son of the most high God. That he is given the throne of David forever. That he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That his kingdom will have no end. That the kingdom has already come and is still yet to come. And in the meantime, we worship you. We honor and glorify you. We lift up and exalt the name of Jesus. We exalt his name to the highest place. For he is given the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Of things in heaven, of things on earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, O God. Thank you, Father, for so great a Savior and so great a salvation. And thank you for sending your Son through the sweet and submissive Virgin who conceived him and carried him and called him Jesus, our Savior. May he be glorified. May Jesus be glorified. Lord Jesus, may you be glorified in each of our lives, not only during this Christmas holiday season, but forever. And as you have come to bring salvation, we pray that you will bring salvation to the hearts and the souls of any under the sound of my voice who hears this message today or in the future. It is in your mighty name we pray and we worship together. Amen.